this week on Forward. But my book it barely has any stories of people being fired or cancelled because I think that the stakes go well beyond that. They go to questions like how our children are educated, how we are encouraging the next generation of Americans to see themselves and to see each other. I don't want a society in which every person is leaning more into their sort of tribal self-interest and whites join the game and say, great, we're going to be proud white people fighting for our interests. That sounds to me like a description of a terribly, deeply divided society. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast the author of the brand new The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time, writer for The Atlantic, Johns Hopkins, Professor Yasha Monk. Welcome back, Yasha. Andrew, I look forward to talking with you about this book. Yeah, we had you on a couple of years ago talking about your last book, The Great Experiment, about democracy. And you actually hinted at the themes of the identity trap in that book, uh, but you delved in headlong. And I dare say this is something that is really imperative. Um, there's been this fascinating progression over the last number of years where uh, and you catalog it painstakingly in The Identity Trap, uh, where what you call the identity synthesis has risen and overrun academia and media institutions and nonprofits and other things. But now there is this kind of, wait a minute, is this really what we want? Is this really working? What is it? <laughs> and so your book strikes me as very, very uh, timely. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I am by training an intellectual historian and a political theorist, and I've just been struck that over the last decades we've seen the emergence of this genuinely new ideology, which is very different from previous strains of left-wing thought. And then in this breathtaking moment, in about the course of a decade, these ideas came to have incredible purchase on mainstream institutions in the United States, from universities to nonprofit organizations to religious communities and corporations. And uh, I'm struck by the fact that very few people have actually paused to understand those ideas, say, where are these ideas actually coming from? How do they become so powerful? And are they a good idea or not? So that's what I'm doing in, in, in the new book, in The Identity Trap. The first part tells the very interesting story of the theorists who uh, sort of uh, came up with these ideas and how these ideas came to coalesce. The second part of the story tells uh, the story of how these ideas went from being influential in corners of the academy, but pretty marginal to society as a whole, to having this mainstream purchase, this mainstream influence. The third part of the book really uh, criticizes uh, the application of these ideas to areas like free speech and cultural appropriation and all those other kinds of things we've been discussing and debating in the last years. And finally, I make a case for how we can take discrimination seriously, take racism and homophobia and injustice seriously, but hold on to what I think is good in other political traditions, hold on in particular to the basic universalist aspirations of our system of government. So this is a book that criticizes these ideas, but it does so in a serious way without polemic um, uh, and, and that takes them seriously. I agree with the case you're making, by the way, just to let everyone know. <laughs> so um, so let's identify what we're talking about. So you call it the identity synthesis. 
Uh, others might call it wokeness. Others might call it political correctness. I'm going to call out two authors who have tackled this in different ways. Um, John McWhorter, the Columbia professor, called it woke racism, <laughs> which was, I thought, very, very provocative uh, name he gave it. Uh, Tim Urban, in his book, um, What's Our Problem, um, talked about it in a certain way. Um, so how would you define the identity synthesis? Yeah, so first of all, I don't really care what to call it. I think it's Freddie DeBoa who said, just just tell me what on earth to call this thing, and I'll, ta I'll, I'll use that name. But I think it's a problem that we don't have a neutral appellation for this, right? In America, some people are socialists, lots of people dislike socialism. Some people are conservatives, lots of people dislike conservatism. But, but, but everybody can agree to call socialism socialism, to call conservatism conservatism, right? You're not sort of spiking the ball or spiking the, the football by calling it one thing or the other. And in this area, we don't have a term that is neutral, that supporters and critics of this tradition can agree on. And it's really made it harder to think through and talk about it. So I'm calling it the identity synthesis because this is a new set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation. Um, and it is, I believe, a synthesis of different intellectual influences in uh, postmodernism, postcolonialism, and finally critical race theory. Feel free to call it something else, call it the thing, but I think we need a term for it. So you're asking, you know, what actually defines that? And, you know, there's been some debate about that. There's been a viral clip of somebody not being able to define it. And so some people say, well, there's no such thing as wokeness. We don't even know what it is. No, I think we can define it. One way to define it is through the main themes of ideas that people coalesce around. It is a skepticism towards grand narratives, including that which sustains our basic institutions in the American Republic. It is a politicized form of discourse critique which thinks of political battle, of political engagement, of consisting a lot, not in fights over policies, but in fighting over cultural hegemony of how we talk about things, that part of feminist politics is to debate and to praise or to critique the Barbie movie. It is the embrace of a form of what Gayatri Spiva calls strategic essentialism, which acknowledges that race is a social construct, but then says for political purposes, we should actually be encouraging our children to be racial beings, to think of themselves as strongly as possible in racial terms. It is a rejection of universal solutions to problems, which is rooted in the, the, the work of critical race theory saying that uh, we uh, should reject uh, the uh, defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement, make how people are treated explicitly depend of a group uh, of which we are part. And finally, it is a deep skepticism about our ability to understand each other across the lines of identity, uh, a skepticism about the ways in which members of different groups can actually communicate. So those are the, the, the basic themes. Another way of getting at this is to boil this ideology down to its three core claims. Now, nobody has made exactly those three claims in those ways. This is sort of an exercise in what philosophers call rational reconstruction of trying to boil a rich, complicated tradition with many themes down to its core ideas. Um, but I think it's a useful exercise. Now, I would say that the three main claims associated with this tradition are the following ones. Number one, that to understand the world, you really have to look at it, you really have to see it through the prism of identity groups like race, gender, and sexual orientation. That's what's going to explain big historical events, and it's going to explain how we relate to each other in this conversation. 
Secondly, that the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence and all of those universal aspirations, all of those neutral rules, didn't actually aim to make the world a better place. They were designed to pull the wool over people's eyes, to actually perpetuate racial discrimination, sexual discrimination, other forms of injustice. And then finally, the upshot of that, if you want to make progress in the future, it is not a matter, as Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. and others believed, of living up to the promises of the Constitution, of making sure that every American actually enjoys the protection of them. It is discarding them. It is getting rid of them. It is making explicitly depend uh, on the group to which you belong, how I treat you, you treat me, how the state treats all of us. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Imagine running for president and wanting to share what you experienced in a way that's entertaining, edifying, and maybe even a little bit scary. That's The Last Election, out in bookstores now, a novel about an independent presidential candidate, a journalist with a massive story, and what the heck could be our next slash last election. Check it out at andrewyang.com. Yeah, the the book opens with various accounts of children being corned off by race in the classroom, uh, some of them in schools that I recognize. Uh, I have two school-aged children, and it's been interesting as a parent trying to figure out how to explain race uh, to your, your kids. Um, but I will say I'd be deeply uncomfortable if I knew that they were just showing up and being like, hey, like you're in this... Uh, classroom or group you're in this classroom or group just based explicitly on <laughs> on uh, on how they look or their uh, ethnic background um, so for for folks who have looked at this and and this I think people do understand uh, why is this such an important thing to tackle and and you talk about in the book a little bit you say look and this is one of the problems of our time where it's like this is both sidesism it's like hey why are you reckoning with like quote unquote the excesses uh, of the left when the real danger is uh, is from the other side, um, which is something that you do touch on. 
Um, and I, I think it's one of the problems of this kind of binary uh, political world we live in where it's like, you know, the two sides to everything. Like, hey, if you do this with us, why aren't you doing it o over there? Um, I, I happen to think this is a serious problem. It takes us away from actually solving the problems. It takes us away from uh, core issues. It does also occasionally ruin people's careers. Uh, it uh, silences a ton of people. Like there are a, a lot of folks who feel like they can't actually speak their mind for fear of getting drummed out of a particular institution. But why should people be most concerned? I guess I gave my list. <laughs> yeah, you answered your own question better than I can, so now I'm in a bad position. But, but let me say a few things, right? I mean, first of all, you, you know, I, I'm not against any form of identity politics. There's certain forms of what might be called identity politics that's perfectly appropriate. It's fine for there to be the AARP fighting for the interests of older Americans, even though sometimes the power that that group has is not for the best. Uh, you know, it's perfectly normal that when you were running your presidential campaign, you probably had some forms of targeted outreach to Asian Americans. I think that's perfectly fine. That's a normal way of doing politics. So I'm not worried about kids uh, understanding in certain ways that they're part of an ethnic group and that that structures how they're treated in society. But what we're talking about here is a much more extreme form of that, right? What we're talking about is uh, teachers coming into first, second grade classrooms and saying, if you're white, you go over there. If you're Asian, you go over here. If you're Latino, you go over there. If you're black, you go over there. Uh, that is imposing an identity on them. And this new uh, progressive ideology of pedagogy explicitly leans into that. One of the most uh, influential organizations now in that space is called Embrace Race, and schools, whether it's Bank School, uh, Bank Street School in the Upper West Side of Manhattan or Dalton on the Upper East Side, uh, Sidwell Friends and Horace Mann and other elite private schools explicitly want to teach their children to think of themselves as quote-unquote racial beings. I think that that goes too far and I worry about what's going to happen to the white kids. I don't worry that they might be uncomfortable or something like that. I think being uncomfortable is a good part of education sometimes. But if you tell those kids to quote-unquote own the European heritage, to think of themselves in racial terms as whites, a few of them might become anti-racist activists, a few of them might start to disown the white privilege. A lot of them are going to do what is unfortunately very human, to say, if that is my primary group, I'm going to fight for the interests of that group. I'm going to treat people within that group better and people outside of that group worse, and then you've created white supremacists, which is the last thing that we need in our politics. So I think this starts to illustrate some of the reasons why we should care about this. One is simply that this has real stakes. Um, you, know, you mentioned people being fired or being cancelled, and I worry about that, and I've written about that, but my book it barely has any stories of people being fired or cancelled, because I think that the stakes go well beyond that. They go to questions like how our children are educated, how we are encouraging the next generation of Americans to see themselves and to see each other. They go to important questions of public policy. During the pandemic, for example, a key advisory council to the CDC refused to prioritize elderly Americans for scarce anti-COVID vaccines, even though the CDC's own models showed that this was the most effective way to save lives. Why did they refuse to do that? 
because older Americans are, are disproportionately white, and so this would supposedly be unethical. But as a result, we ended up with a mess of a system where lots of people were in theory eligible but couldn't get appointments. So who ended up with the appointments? People who had a lot of resources, who could click refresh on websites, who could build little programs to find vacant spots, who could drive hours out of a way to upstate New York to some pharmacy that had more availability. And finally, I worry that this actually is going to help the worst forces in our politics. I understand my friend's worry saying, you know, with Donald Trump looking like he might come back to the White House in 2024, aren't there bigger fish to fry? Shouldn't we uh, rally around the wagon? I get that instinct. But in fact, it is uh, Trump's victory in 2016, which allowed many of these ideas to become so prominent and progressive and even facially neutral spaces. But it is the dominance, the control that many of these ideas have over the Democratic Party, over mainstream institutions, over many media outlets, that is fueling the anger which gives Donald Trump a chance to win back the White House in 2024. So however different they might be at the ideological level, in practical terms, one is the yin to the other's yang. If we want a decent country, we have to oppose both. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to tell a couple of stories that I, I think um, speak to this. I, I had dinner with a guy who was very, very senior in the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. And he said that they ran a closing ad that showed a Muslim woman, uh, um, like a, a Latino teenager, like a whole slew of marginalized groups saying, uh, hey, you know, this is the America we want. And he said they actually didn't include... Uh, any white faces in this ad. Um, and, and they found that this ad uh, actually pushed some folks to vote the other side. Like, uh, like their base loved it, but it actually turned off some folks. And it, it struck me as somewhat strange that if you were going to put out an ad that was meant to include the diversity of America, like the mosaic, like you wouldn't have <laughs> folks who, um, you know, like I, I believe remain still, you know, like the, the majority. So that, that was an example I thought that, um, like he actually said, it's like, hey, we, we messed up on, on that one. Yeah, and, and, and obviously uh, I agree that we need parties that stand for a multiracial America that want everybody to belong, but that has to mean everybody. And yeah. even in purely electoral and strategic terms, it's really stupid. Both in 2008 and 2012, a majority of Barack Obama's voters were white. He did better among non-white groups, much better among some non-white groups than among white people. But because white people remain a very large percentage of America, a majority of the voters that elected Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 were white. And so to have this closing argument that says, we want an America that features every group other than this group, um, it's not just, I think, normatively wrong. We want a society in which everybody has a place. It is just strategically incredibly stupid. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, 
I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Yeah, I mean, heck, uh, Barack Obama won the Iowa Democratic Caucus, and that was meant to be, you know, like, it was like, oh, my gosh, like, he, he won in a place that was, I think, 94% white at the time. Um, so there are so many quotes from your book that I enjoy, but uh, this is one that spoke to me. I think this was one of the main ideas of the book. The identity synthesis is a political trap, making it harder to sustain diverse societies whose citizens trust and respect each other. It is also a personal trap, one that makes misleading promises about how to gain the sense of belonging and social recognition that most humans naturally seek. Uh, I thought that was very, very powerful. Thanks. Yeah, and again, you know, uh, you're, you're Chinese-American, and I'm sure your cultural and linguistic heritage is important to you. I'm Jewish, and even if I'm not religious, that is meaningful to me. Um, part of a healthy sense of individual identity will be those forms of belonging to a particular group. But I think that the message that we are now sending young kids in particular, and I really notice this among the students that I teach, is to say that everybody seeks recognition in society and they want to be seen uh, as themselves. And that is true. I think that's true of nearly everybody. It's true of me. It's probably true of you. But the way you seek that recognition, the way you find that sense of being seen is to define yourself by the particular intersection of identities at which you stand. And I think that that is uh, a false promise for many people whose belonging in a particular group might be marginal, who perhaps have one parent from one group and one parent from another group and are never quite sure. seen as fully belonging to either. But, but more importantly, even if you're fully a member of that group, it will never actually give you the kind of recognition which all of us crave, which is that as being individuals as well. Probably most people listening, if you have a sibling, they're going to share lots of identity groups with you. But you're not your sibling. You love them, I hope. Hopefully you get on with them. You share some interest with them, but you're not identical to them. The standing that you seek in society, the form of recognition you seek from your parents, from your family, from society as a whole, goes beyond just that intersection of identities. And so I worry that we're sending people a message to seek validation from something that can be a healthy part of a self-identity, but that can never fully constitute it if they're actually going to develop a healthy regard of selves and a healthy sense of their place in society. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of my heritage uh, as a, the child of immigrants. Um, but at the same time, 
Um, you know, there, there are issues that affect all of us. I mean, when I ran, it was on AI and automation. Um, and I dare say that's going to affect uh, just about everyone. One reason why your book... Uh, I, I thought was really uh, hard-nosed and practical was that it actually details how a lot of nonprofits uh, descended into in, inner turmoil uh, and questioning of their leaders and cultures over the last number of years. I know some of the folks who run these organizations, and some of them actually say to me that they are running scared of their own employees, which is, by the way, not what you want when you're talking about, in many cases, very progressive, not, uh, you know, nonprofits, which theoretically, you know, I mean, there's a lot of work for them to do. Um, that There are some folks I know who run these organizations who say it's now their number one criteria when they're looking to hire someone is like, is this person going to ask for me to be fired um, X months from now? And, and that's like their, their number one question as they're screening. I'm going to suggest that's deeply unhealthy. Uh, and a lot of these orgs are doing very important work, and you hope that they're focused on the work as opposed to focused on, okay, are these people going to come for my job uh, down the road? Well, absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's very strong evidence of these cultural problems within particularly progressive organizations that come from people who are senior leaders uh, within those spaces, people like uh, Morris Mitchell, who uh, you know, is the head of a Working Families Party, a longtime organizer of a movement for black lives, um, who's written very powerfully about the toxic atmosphere within these institutions. And, and one of the reasons for that is that um, we've adopted a set of simplistic ideas that make many claims uh, unfalsifiable. So you know, in the book, again, I go through in the first part of the book the intellectual history of a sophisticated version of these ideas, talking about people like Michel Foucault and Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak and Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw. And I disagree with many of them in profound ways. Um, uh, I have this pet peeve that people say, oh, this is like going a little bit too far. I don't think it's going too far. You can't go too far in fighting racism and sexism and discrimination. I'm all in. It's just that they're going in the wrong direction. Their vision for society is wrong-headed. But these are sophisticated, smart thinkers. I also chronicle the way in which these ideas have been, become popularized and sometimes vulgarized in the form of thinkers like Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi. And they really uh, have created this unforcifiable thought bubble. Uh, right? For, 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 for DiAngelo, uh, a white woman, by the way, if you disagree with something she says in her trainings, if you have a different view of the world, if you want to bring some evidence to the table, you're just demonstrating your white fragility. You're just demonstrating that you're too uh, insecure and probably too racist to understand the wisdom she's imparting. For Ibram X. Kendi, uh, you know, there's only racists and anti-racists. There's no in-between category. There's no such thing as being not racist. And any idea or any institution that has racially disparate outcomes is by definition racist, including the United States Constitution. So effectively, if you don't want to scrap the United States Constitution, you're a racist. Nothing to be done about that. And that kind of Manichaean worldview is part of what individuals within these organizations can weaponize. Most people in these organizations are good, decent people who have genuine ideals for how to make a better world. But like in every organization, there's also some sociopaths who like to exercise power over their uh, peers or who are narcissists who think that they are the best 
thing ever and any criticism of them is deeply unfair. And they have now been given these tools to say, if my boss criticizes me, that must be racist, that must be bigoted. Uh, and within progressive organizations and increasingly mainstream organizations, there's no language to stand up to that. And so these few individuals within these organizations who are often mentally unwell can use this ideology as a tool to just uh, destroy the internal culture in these deeply damaging ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to tell a story about a nonprofit leader who uh, started adding this language to the job posting, saying we respect people of every background and ideology, uh, and then put the word Republican in the job post, uh, you know, Democrats, Republicans, Independents, and then said that actually ended up um, screening uh, applicants because uh, some folks would be like, oh, I can't work with Republicans. <laughs> and and then uh, he said, hey, this actually improved the culture because then people who joined would be like, oh, I guess I might have some Republicans on, on the team. Now, factually, I think most of his team was, um, you know, on the other side politically, but he was looking to identify folks who weren't going to, to wind up, frankly, turning on their managers in, in various ways. Uh, one of the most powerful quotes in your book, which I obviously enjoyed, uh, such that I, I flagged uh, all sorts of things, um, progressive separatism is a dead end. Its vision of the future is neither realistic nor attractive. And partial success, a world in which whites do come to define themselves by their ethnic identity, yet fail to dismantle the advantages as, that have historically flowed from it, may transport us into the worst of all possible timelines. Uh, and this is the concern you identified earlier, which is you say, hey, let's separate everyone from, uh, from childhood by race, and then you have this majority group of whites that then think of themselves as uh, ethnically white, then you might wind up with uh, a real uh, oppressive environment. And in many ways, you call upon the earlier traditions of universalism, which you say you grew up with and was also very much represented by the civil rights movement, saying we should all we should treat uh, each other equally as a better approach. Yeah, you know, the writer Eric Kaufman, uh, in his book Whiteface, pointed out that in our societies now, we sort of very strongly encourage these very different forms of ethnic pride, except... Uh, for white people, um, you know, and in a way that is evidenced in this video you talked about from the Hillary Clinton campaign, right? Um, and his conclusion of that was, so what we should encourage is for white people to uh, have forms of white pride as well and to, uh, you know, argue for their interests. Uh, I respect Kaufman. I think he's a sincere broker, but uh, I think that is precisely the opposite of what we should do. I don't want a society in which every person is leaning more into their sort of tribal self-interest and whites join the game and say, great, we're going to be proud white people fighting for our interests. That sounds to me like a description of a terribly, deeply divided society with zero-sum battles for resources, which, by the way, the group that has historically been most privileged in the United States is likely to win because it remains the biggest group and it retains a lot of resources. Um, but that is the logical upshot of things like these uh, affinity groups where teachers come in and split kids up into groups, including the, the white kids. And so the question is, you know, how can we do better? 
we've had this historical debate for a very long time. You know, Frederick Douglass was invited uh, by uh, some people to give a famous speech, a speech that turned out to be famous, to become famous, for the 4th of July. And he called out the hypocrisy, saying, how can you celebrate the words of a declaration of independence when there's still slavery in the United States? But he didn't say, therefore, because, of, because they're hypocritical, these words are useless, rip up the Declaration of Independence, rip up the Bill of Rights. No, he said, if you truly value those ideas, those principles, then you have to live up to them. By what right are you excluding me and uh, my fellow African-Americans from the enjoyment of these principles? That is a universalist tradition in American history that isn't naive about injustice, that isn't naive about obstacles, but that points the way to the right solution. This is why Frederick Douglass, fully realizing that free speech allowed people in his day to say terrible things, called free speech the dread of tyrants because it also allowed him and his fellow abolitionists to argue when it was very unpopular for the immediate abolition of slavery. That is what, Frederick, that is what Martin Luther King Jr. staked his claims on in the 1960s, saying that the promissory note written by the country to African Americans had turned out to be fraudulent. But he didn't say, let's rip up that promissory note. He said, let's make sure that the Bank of Justice actually honors the promissory note. So, you know, going back to the three main claims of what I'm calling the identity synthesis, or what, if you like, you can call wokeness, these are the three answers to it, right? The claims that they make, to, as a quick reminder, are race, gender, and sexual orientation of a key prism for understanding society, universal values just pull the wool over people's eyes, we have to rip them up and make how we treat each other dependent on the groups of which we are part. I think there is sensible universalist responses to each of those claims. And the first one is to say, well, look, of course race and gender and sexual orientation matters. Of course that's one of the prisms we need to understand society. But so is social class. So is religion. So is uh, the individuality of each of us. Uh, uh, you know, whether we act rightly or wrongly, what preferences and idiosyncrasies we have. So is all kinds of other things. We have to let each situation teach us how to read it rather than coming to every situation with a preconceived notion that just knowing your race and knowing my race, we're going to know what is at stake in this conversation. Secondly, of course, uh, we've often failed to live up to universal values and neutral rules in American society. But as the example Frederick Douglass and uh, King and so many others demonstrates, the demand to live up to them, the invocation of those ideals has in fact been a great motor for historical progress. And unlike what people who belong to the tradition of the identity synthesis claim, we have been made able to make significant progress. America today is imperfect, but it's much more just than it was 200 or 100 or 50 years ago. And therefore, finally, how we make progress is to live up to those ideals, not to get rid of them, is to create a society in which how we're treated truly comes to depend less on the kind of group of which we're part. Not because we ignore injustices, but because together we manage to solve many of them. Most people know, uh, I, I think we should be doing much more uh, to alleviate poverty. Um, I think this can be something that 
folks of any, let's call it racial background, uh, can agree on. And one of the great policy achievements of the last number of years was the enhanced child tax credit that reduced child poverty um, from double digits to 5%. And then unfortunately, it expired in 2022, and then then child poverty shot back up to 12%. So there were maybe 5 million American kids who were thrust back into poverty. Uh, now, uh, I feel like poor kids is something that people of just about any community should should be able to say, okay, like, you know, I'm against poor kids. I'm, I'm for poor kids having uh, enough to eat and uh, being able to, to learn. Uh, and that's an example of a, a real policy goal that I think you can um, bring people around. Um, so you cite social science uh, as to, okay, Let's say that I think divvying people up um, by these immutable traits is not uh, an ideal path to uh, a successful situation. Um, So you found all this research as to when intergroup contact actually does improve things. uh, And I thought this was really helpful. You said, look, here are some of the conditions that studies have shown actually improve intergroup relationships. Maybe they even make you like people of another race a little bit more and then think that, uh, you know, we can all um, get along and uh, get things done. So number one, equal status, that it's not like, hey, you're above or below me. It's like we're we're on the same team in in the same place. Number two, common goals, things that we can get uh, together on and say, you know, like, we can agree on this at, at least. And what some of the things that made me think about this are Teams or military units where you're like, you're, you know, your goal is to beat the other team. Your goal is to, uh, to take the objective. Number three, intergroup cooperation. You have to actually do things together. And then number four is support from authorities and customs. So people are encouraged essentially to be on the team and get stuff done together. Uh, I, I thought that was actually very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, let me say a little bit about each of these examples, right? So um, should we care about universal welfare state policies in which we're saying, you know, anybody who's in need, or in certain cases like uh, Social Security, just anybody, even when they're affluent, is going to get some kind of benefit? Or should we target it, target it often by racial means, saying because African Americans are more disadvantaged in the United States, we need special focused programs for African Americans rather than for everybody. Those latter ones have become very, very common in our policy making recently. And I think that they are a mistake. They're a mistake for pragmatic reasons, because it's much harder to build those majorities, to build those stable uh, 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 legislative votes for those programs. As you were saying about the Universal Child uh, Benefit Program, that expired because we couldn't get it passed through Congress again. That problem is going to become so much more severe when you have targeted programs for particular ethnic groups, which are much, much less popular. But even at the conceptual levels, there is a problem with the purely disparitarian account. Because even when uh, African-American kids are disproportionately likely to be in poverty, a majority of the kids that are in poverty are likely to come from other groups. The biggest group of children that is in poverty is white because there still is a majority of white people in the country. So you're not actually helping those kids, and each kid that is in poverty should be of equal concern to us. Just as importantly, there's the suggestion that universal welfare benefits can't help to redress 
disparities. But that is actually logically false, because if a disproportionate percentage of kids from a particular ethnic group are in need, then a policy that helps anybody who's in need is disproportionately going to help members of that group. The great black Marxist, as it happens, uh, political theorist Adolf Reed Jr., has uh, uh, argued against the idea of equity, what he calls racist paritarianism, by saying, you know, if you follow that logic, then America would be just if only 13% of billionaires, that's about 13% of the American population is, is black, if only 13% of billionaires were black. So you can still have huge inequality and stuff, have very high rates of child poverty, but we have equity. That is not the most important value that we should aim for. And then the other point you make is, is absolutely right. It's referring back to the most well-researched, well-documented, extensive finding in social psychology of the last 70 years. Thousands of studies showing that so-called intergroup contact can have these positive impacts, which is something we should all be very happy about. What a wonderful finding. But yeah. even if I have prejudices against you or your group, even if you have prejudices against me, if we're in the right kind of situation, we're going to reduce those prejudices. We can build friendships. We can communicate to each other as humans. But the tradition also shows there's clear constraints on when that happens. It happens in contexts like a sports team, where within the sports team we have equal status. Perhaps you have more money than I. Perhaps you come from a social group that is more respected in general, and that's unfair. But on the sports team, we're both players. We're both treated as equals. We have to work together. We're only going to win if we actually aim for the same goal and cooperate in this situation. And finally, the coach tells us, whatever beef you have outside of a, outside of a team, you better get on. That's what I expect of you. Those situations allow people to get to know each other, to build trust. And then in the locker room or afterwards over a meal, they can say, hey, I have these experiences. This bad thing happened to me. I have these struggles. And they can open up to each other. Instead, what we're doing is we opposite. We are separating people out by group. Many elite universities in this country now are building separate dorms that they're encouraging uh, black and Latino students to live in so that they're separated from their other classmates. They send the message that we're not expected to get along. And many American universities now with anonymous hotlines that allow people to report each other for perceived microaggression. Um, that is the opposite of what the most important tradition in social psychology has taught us about how to actually encourage people to get along and build deeper links between them. Now, uh, Yasha, uh, I'm naturally a universalist uh, because I care about poor black kids, white kids, Asian kids, Latino kids. I just care about poor kids, you know? I mean, uh, uh, I have a couple of kids myself, and you see how uh, how not having a, a, enough to make ends meet would uh, cause for a much more stressful environment. Like, kids wouldn't be learning. You'd end up having various uh, behavioral problems. It breaks my heart that we actually solved for this for millions of American kids and then unsolved for it because of politics. Uh, and you'd like to think that if you have a policy victory like this, then people of every side can get together and celebrate it. Um, one reason why I think your work is so important is that uh, in a two-sided universe, 
one of the things that is happening, and I'm just going to suggest this to, to folks. Um, so people get attacked for some kind of misstatement or failing, you know, offense. Um, uh, and then um, they say, okay, whoever's attacking me, I'm uh, clearly not with you. So who's against you? I guess I'm with them. Um, and there are a lot of folks who actually want great things to happen. They want society to progress. Uh, they want us to be more just, more fair. Um, uh, and we have to try and create a zone for people to be in where it's like, look, I want good things to happen. I just think that this particular ideological approach uh, is not effective, practical, um, you know, uh, something that I, I necessarily want to subscribe to, but I also don't want to subscribe to the folks that are on the other side of this, this thing. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't think that that's right. So uh, my, some of my work is trying to create this middle zone. Um, and, and I, I dare say that there are a lot of people who would like to join this middle zone if, if we could give them, um, a path. It's one reason why I think your book is so important because it helps define for people why they might be uncomfortable with, with certain ideas, uh, and then maybe uh, an intellectual home. Yeah, I mean, you know, in this debate, I feel this very strongly, that a lot of my friends and, and colleagues uh, are starting to see how these ideas are playing out, and they're uncomfortable with them. They're recognizing that they seem to be wrongheaded. But then they switch on cable news, or uh, they look at social media, and the loudest, most visible people who are criticizing these ideas seem even worse, yeah. right? There are these sort of anti-woke reactionaries who decry anything that is like as well. We teach kids about slavery in school, you're woke. If you uh, think that there's still racism and sexism in our society, uh, you're woke. Um, you know, and then they say, well, I don't want to be on the side of these guys, so I guess perhaps I should be woke. You know? And what I'm trying to do in this book is give people the intellectual tools to understand this tradition, to understand that it really, from the beginning, was designed as a challenge to uh, the kind of hard-nosed uh, progressive movement that actually created positive social change in the United States. Um, you know, Derek Bell explicitly said he wants to abolish the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw said that the philosophy of Barack Obama is fundamentally at odds with critical race theory. So I think a lot of people, even if they lean in the left or they're in the center, the liberal or the moderate or the conservative for that matter, should be able to reject these ideas. So I have two goals of this book. The first is to uh, elevate the argument that people make against this tradition, to create the language and the force and the ideas that actually take these ideas seriously and are then able to explain why, though they may be well-intentioned, they are ultimately wrong-headed. Uh, and I think a lot of people are in that boat. And then I also want to uh, uh, write a book that allows people who feel generally torn to think through this, who say, I, I get why it's so important to fight against these injustices. And some of these points seem sensible, but I also smell a little bit of a rat. So, you know, if you're in the first category, please buy this book, please read it. There's a lot more than we were able to say in this conversation. I promise it's going to help you think through these ideas and argue against them in a more sophisticated, more honest, more effective way. And secondly, you know, if you have 
a brother or a sister-in-law who's a little bit more on the quote-unquote work spectrum, who's a little bit more tempted by these ideas, but who you think is open to serious conversation about it, gift the book to them and perhaps you can have uh, this as a conversation starter. Perhaps you can actually use this to, 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 to have a serious conversation about these important issues within your friend circle or within your family. Oh, Yasha, what a, what a great vision and ambition for the book uh, as someone who believes full well that racism and sexism uh, exist but, uh, and wants good things to happen for people um, and thinks that the best path to do so is the path you suggest, which is making common cause uh, with people and emphasizing our commonalities as Americans. Congratulations on this achievement, The Identity Trap. The story of ideas and power in our time. Aside from buying the book, how can people keep up with you? You've also founded a media company in your spare time. Uh, yeah, so um, I run a, a magazine that stands for many of these ideas. It's a nonprofit called Persuasion. You can subscribe to us at persuasion.community. And I host a podcast called The Good Fight, in which we have uh, you know, wonderful guests like Andrew Young and many, many others, uh, to have serious conversations about the most pressing questions of uh, this time. Serious conversations about the most pressing questions of our time. Congrats again, Yasha. And uh, it, it's an awesome book. And I hope that it has the impact that you envisioned and described. Thank you so much, Andrew. Andrew. 